Jake Knapp is the inventor of the design sprint and the New York Times bestselling author of the book Sprint. He's also the co-founder of Character, a venture fund for early stage startups. How and why did you start using Miro? I came from this position of thinking, I don't want to be doing stuff online to thinking now when I do a sprint in person with a company, it's like, we're going to use Miro, even though we're all in the same room, because that's a better way for us to get this work done. As an investor, we're basically investing in their ability to solve problems. We're saying, we think this group of people is going to be able to solve a problem in a really great way and create value by doing it. And actually, you need to give people the tools that can help them make decisions, help them collaborate, help them visualize and see things in a different way. And Miro does all those things. So to me, at least as an investor, I'm thinking, give the team the tools that are going to help them think, that are going to make the most, brighten their, their skills as smart folks. And Miro is at the top of that list. Stigmas around mental health were designed to hold us down, but we don't have to let them. If you're struggling, text or call 988 to connect with a trained crisis counselor who won't judge, just listen. 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Hope has a new number. Wow, uh, what a week it's been for me. Yes, what Noah told you was true. I was at Turning Points America Fest this past weekend from Saturday to Tuesday. I am working on a video as we speak that should be out by the time you're hearing this or close to it, recapping all of that. And I'm sorry I did not get a chance to post Monday's episode. Between that and our in-person podcast event that happened on Friday night, which by the way went so well, it was just super hard to get anything done being on the road from Wednesday really until uh, yesterday. So that being said, I did want to get this episode out before Christmas because I brought on Dr. Dr. Angela Parker to talk about looking at Christmas through the lens of, of a womanist theologian. Dr. Angela Parker is a distinguished theologian who was featured in the 1946 documentary. She is amazing. And she, she also taught our Theology 101 class last month on womanist theology. So I brought her on to talk about Christmas. I know a lot of us are probably just trying to think about how do we approach Christmas again. And we had Trip Fuller on last year talking about the virgin birth, which by the way, is such a good episode worth listening to. And this year I wanted to bring on Dr. Angela Parker. So I have to get back to making all the content I have to catch up on and, and emails. So I'll leave you with that for the intro. I miss all of you. We should have something out for you this Monday after Christmas. If we don't, it will be that week. We're just trying to catch up. I appreciate your patience, friends, as you hang in there with us. Thank you so much. Oh, one last thing. It is almost the end of the year. If you want to donate to us as an organization and get that sweet, sweet, sweet tax break on your taxes, now is the time to donate. We are a registered nonprofit. All of your finances that you donate to us goes directly into making this work possible, into holding space for thousands of people, and also helping us understand things like Christian nationalism and, um, and, and being better armed to critique it and resist it. The link is in our bio. You can find it there. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Angela Parker. Have a great day. 
All right. Uh, you know, Dr. Parker, I got to say, I think I've talked to you and seen you four times in the past month. I, I, I saw you at the 1946 premiere. Uh, uh, then you yes. did a Theology 101 class for us, which, by the way, mm-hmm. the feedback I got was just unbelievable. So thank you for doing that. Oh, good. I've had you on the podcast <laughs> before, and I said, you know what? Let's have Dr. Parker back on and talk about Christmas. And here you are. So it's great to see you again. Here I am. <laughs> It is so good to see you as well, Tim. It's a pleasure. I'm just enjoying the times that we're having together. And if it's, it's like four times in a month is just, you know, that never happens with me for anybody. Well, I, I feel honored. <laughs> I feel the same way. I mean, the, the honor is mine. Really quick, just for the audience, because you are talking to maybe some different folks who might not know who you are in your work. Would you mind just kind of introducing mm-hmm. you and, and what you do? Sure. So I am Angela Parker. I'm a professor of New Testament and Greek at Mercer University's McAfee School of Theology. And so I'm also the author of If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Black Lives Matter and Biblical Authority. So in my day job, I'm teaching MDiv students. I'm teaching Masters of Arts in Christian Ministry students. I'm teaching Doctorate of Ministry students, everything about the New Testament and Greek. And What I describe my work as is I'm preparing pastors for a new generation. God knows that I did not have the gift of pastoring in a lay, in a a church ministry, but I feel as though my pastorate is with the training that I'm able to do with these up and coming seminarians who I hope will become pastors very different than the pastors we see out in the world now. And you were just featured in the documentary, 1946, as well. <laughs> yes, I was just featured in the 1946, the mistranslation that shifted a culture. So happy that that is getting out into the world, and that was wonderfully directed by Rocky Rose. Uh, it really was, and I, I was I told you this offline, <laughs> but when I, I got the chance, Rocky invited me and my wife to the premiere, and I'm sitting there, and mm-hmm. I see your face on the street, and I go, Sarah, holy shit, that's Dr. Parker. I've talked to her before. This is <laughs> so cool. And then you were actually at the premiere and I'm like, you've got to be, yes. Dr. Parker is here in the same room I am. So it was just a very cool moment of like, wow, my, my, my world's collided. I'm nerding out. My, 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 my wife is like, who is that? I'm like, oh my God, don't just, listen to, don't just listen to my podcast. Like how, you know? but anyway, the point is that it, it was great. Well, I'm sorry. Your, your wife and my husband are always reacting the same way. <laughs> my husband's like, wait, who are you nerding out about? What? What's going on? That's exactly right. <laughs> and that's why our my marriage is really healthy because I need that in my life and vice versa. Uh, yes. <laughs> so you know, it is so true. It is right. <laughs> the reason I asked you on, um, you you uh, about maybe was it a week ago now or two weeks ago? You you did a theology one hundred and one class for us, which is something that we do yes. for our community. It's free to them, and we we bring on different theologians and scholars to kind of help us walk through different rooms of the Christian tradition. And and you did such a powerful. And I think really helpful, um, you know, intro into womanist theology, uh, what it means to be a womanist theologian. And I was thinking about, you know, it's almost Christmas. We're going to post this probably next Monday. So it's the week of Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, including myself, I'm not always sure how to renegotiate Christmas because I've experienced it one way. Mm. And I still find a lot of beauty in the story of the incarnation and and all of these things. But I'm a little... 
skittish sometimes, you know? And I thought to myself, you know, I would love to hear Dr. Parker's perspective as someone who teaches at such a high level and is so knowledgeable, you know, maybe some of her personal thoughts, but maybe how she would teach on Christmas. So I I would just love to kind Mm. of kick off maybe briefly, if you don't mind just giving that brief description of womanist theology briefly for our audience, maybe we can kind of hop into it. Yeah. So womanist theology essentially began in 1985, and it's still new in the world of academia. It essentially takes seriously the lived experiences of Black women across the globe. Because I live in the United States, I tend to focus on the United States, but there are womanists who are in Britain and Africa, and they focus on Black women's lived experiences in those parts of the world as well. And so for me, it's just taking seriously women's Black women's lived experiences because, you know, feminist theology developed mostly from middle class white women and black liberation theology essentially developed through the lens of black men. And so there was a a hole in just who was doing theology and also uh, biblical interpretation. So womanism grew up out of um, an expression by Alice Walker where older Mother, mothers would say to their daughters, you're acting womanish, meaning you're always wanting to know more than you're supposed to know. And so womanist became a phrase that Black women used to identify themselves that distinguishes us from feminism. Some people think about Black feminism and womanism as interchangeable. I tend to stay with womanism and womanist. Uh, but there are, of course, in any academic discussion, there's always growing pains because I would say that the early, early womanist scholars did not were were not accepting of LGBTIQA plus issues, and so there was a lot of homophobia in early womanism. And then there are those who come later, like myself, who really see the idea of solidarity across identities that actually is more liberative. And I would also argue that these solidarity solidarity across varying identities help us address the white supremacy that is actually over atop every other identity as we do theology and biblical interpretation. Yeah. So that's my quick and dirty I love it. definition no, it's, of womanism. It's helpful. <laughs> I think for a lot of folks listening, it's something that they've never been exposed to or never have heard, you know, maybe explained that way because, you, you know, my, my tradition, it, it was white evangelicalism, right? And when you grew yeah. up in that basement, mm-hmm. that's just kind of all you know. And anything outside of that is seen as a threat to the true gospel or it's not really Christian right. or you can't explore it. And I think a lot of us now mm-hmm. are like, okay, we're out of the basement. We're in that first room. We're kind of overwhelmed by how big the house is. Uh, and folks like mm-hmm. yourself are just very helpful tour guides bringing us through these rooms, explaining, like, okay, here's what here's what's going on here. Um, yeah. I think maybe on, on like a big level, um, Christmas, right? I mean, that word, I think for a lot of people yeah. has a lot of feelings. There is the familia ties. There's the theology. There's the, the spectacle of Christmas. There's the consumerism of Christmas. There's a lot to it. <laughs> I, I think I would like to start. There are flying drummer boys yeah, oh, in some God. congregations. <laughs> Yes, yes, there are. Yes, yes, there are indeed flying drummer boys. Jesus Christ. Um, Sorry, that just had to come out. I appreciate it. Um, It's true. There are flying, yes, uh, drummer boys. You know, there's, there's the Christmas spectacle. To maybe start somewhere. 
um, the theology of Christmas, right? I I, I was taught yeah. that that Christmas is we're celebrating God incarnate, you know, born to a virgin, uh, really in a very lowly place in in humanity. And and to be honest, even though I, I've left so much of my evangelical heritage behind. There's something really beautiful about about the God of everything um, incarnating yeah. somehow into our humanness in some of the most hu- mm-hmm. you know, humble ways. I- I'm curious for you, and, and as you've navigated this stuff, um, how 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 does the theology of Christmas speak to you now? Yeah, I love this question because a theology of Christmas for me is very much intertwined with my own womanist identity, and so. My my pastor and even other womanist scholars that I read continue to help me unpack the the Christmas story. So because we are in the season of Advent and I attend St. Paul's Baptist Church online, it's in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and my pastor is the Reverend Dr. Leslie Callahan. So Reverend Dr. Callahan is also a trained womanist theologian in her own right, she is also a pastor. So what she preached this past Sunday was with us in the mess, with us in the mess. And I've taught the passage that she preaches all the time. The passage that she preached from was Matthew chapter one, verses one through 16. So that's the genealogy of Jesus. And so oftentimes People, when they're reading the Bible, they skip the genealogy of Jesus because it's so-and-so begets so-and-so, so-and-so begets so-and-so, and blah, blah, blah. Well, I love Matthew's genealogy because he writes, and I'm taking Matthew as a he because he probably is a he, but we don't know who the writer of Matthew is, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Fair <laughs> <point>. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he writes and he talks about four women in Jesus's lineage leading up to Mary. He talks about Tamar, who had twins by Judah. He talks about Ruth. He talks about Bathsheba, but he calls Bathsheba the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And he also talks about um, a missing one, Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba. I'll figure it out. It's four women. But the thing is, the women are sexually suspect each of the four women that are named. They are sexually suspect and they are often also foreigners as well. So when you think about Jesus being born into a lineage that has sexually suspect women and that people who are just messy have messy lives and Jesus is born into that mess. And so I love how my pastor preached about it. And I also love how Another womanist scholar, Will Gaffney, in her A Woman, A Woman's Lectionary for the Whole Church, Year A, she did the genealogy of Matthew 1, 1 through 16 as well. And in her telling of the story, she actually used, I believe, a woman by the name of Anne Pat- Patricia Ware, W-A-R-E. You can find it online, but she has a genealogy of Jesus that actually fills in the blanks of the women who are left out of the genealogy. And so picture this, you have women in Jesus's genealogy, you have other women who are filling in the blanks of Jesus's genealogy, and then you go over to the gospel of Luke 
And you have Mary, who's just heard the Annunciation by Gabriel, and she gets up after that and goes to her cousin Elizabeth's house, and she stays with Elizabeth for three months. And remember this, those women are having that conversation and are the the vocal people in the Christmas story. And the men, Zacharias, uh, Elizabeth's husband, is stricken dumb because he was really not believing the angel Gabriel when he, he announces that John the Baptist is going to be born. So the Christmas story for me is so full of women and women's conversations that the womanist idea of thinking through Christmas means that we don't get anywhere without women in the story. So I love the fact that women are there and that the powerful women in my life are preaching and teaching this in such a way to remind us of the importance of women. And so as I've been pondering it this week, I actually wrote a blog for Word and Way magazine where I talk about the Christmas story in this way and then say, now, because women are such a part of even the birth of Jesus and we're entering into this season, how do we get from women being a part of Jesus's birth and lineage and very important to women can't preach or teach in churches sometimes? Well, in some churches, churches that... I don't attend those churches, so I still don't understand right. it. But so I then begin to then have conversations about complementarianism and just how we get it wrong. So I think for me, the Christmas season is a way to rethink getting it right. Mm. Uh, even as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, Jesus is birthed by a woman, right? Like like literally yes. is given life, right, by a woman. And I've, I've been privileged to watch both of my kids born. And, you know, I, I know there's all kinds of scientific explanations and I, I, I believe them, but it's also a very holy and sacred moment. Um, when you're in, the, when you're yes. in that moment, uh, it's something that's just mm-hmm. very almost miraculous about it. I don't use that term very often these days. And I'm thinking <laughs> about that and I'm thinking about this concept of, you know, the, uh, God, like the life force of all being, Mm -hmm. um, coming, um, and, and manifesting in, in our humanness through an an infant. Uh, and I have an eight month old, they are quite incapable of doing anything, even at eight months besides crawling and trying to eat everything in in, in sight. Um, but, but it, it is, you know, there's something really beautiful about that. And I think your pers- what you just said about, especially how this is like a woman-led story in so many ways, mm-hmm. is something I never thought about. <laughs> but of course, when you say it, it's like, <laughs> well, duh, yeah, you're right. Like, this guy's mouth is sewn <laughs> shut. He can't talk at all. You know, Joseph is there, right. but he's not, really, he's not really the point of the story. And and it's really exactly. women who are leading this. That That's a fascinating and, and it's right. It's it's in the text. It's right there. It's right there. Right. And but my <laughs> yeah. my perspective was just taught. Well, you know, Jesus and Joseph was a good loyal husband no matter what. And I mean, that was kind of the highlight <laughs> of, of of my tradition, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm. Now, I love. I do want to you know say that when I read the text, especially yeah, Matthew and Luke, they talk about Judah uh, Joseph being a righteous man, and one, when I'm lecturing in class on, especially Matthew, when we look at the women in Jesus's lineage, and I specifically talk about Tamar, Tamar in the Genesis 38 story 
is the daughter-in-law of Judah. And Judah, his son dies. And so she's a widow. And then Judah gives the next son to Tamar. And we have this classic Genesis text that says, and he spilled his seed on the ground and God struck him dead. And you're like, okay, that's weird, but okay. (laughs) So, right. (laughs) But then uh, Judah says to Tamar, well, go back to your family's house and I'll wait until the next son gets old enough to give you another son. So for a woman in that time, that's essentially a death sentence because she does not have any male children who can take care of her, so to speak. Well, what she does is she puts off of her, she puts off her widow's clothing. She puts on the clothing of a prostitute. She goes to a place where she knows Judah is going to pass by and she sleeps with Judah and becomes pregnant with the twins that the gospel of Matthew talks about. Why am I talking about this? When you read the Genesis text, the Genesis text says when Judah finds out finds out about her pregnancy and how she essentially duped him, so to speak, he says, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. And when I read the Matthew story and you get this lineage and you get this repetition of these women who are also doing righteous things, think about Rahab in um, the Jericho story. By the time you get to Joseph, I think that Joseph is important because the constant refrain for Joseph is he is being a righteous man. So I think that the gospel writer actually weaves this story beautifully to talk about the genealogy, talk about women who, when you go back and read their stories, they are also righteous women, but still sexually suspect. But I love that that connection of righteous women and sexually suspect Mm -hmm. women as well, because I think there's something to that, that especially a conservative church doesn't want to talk about. (laughs) And so by the time you get to Joseph, he's woven into the story just for, you know, until Jesus ministry starts, we don't know or hear anything about Joseph, Mm -hmm. but you know, he's woven in as a righteous person by sticking by Mary. So I don't want to, do a reversal and put men under women. I just want that equality that actually holds and respects every person within the story. And then by virtue, holding and respecting every person in our own lives as well. And I think that's another wonderful aspect of the Christmas story. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. You know, every time I have, I know that was that was long as well. well it's, not, too. it's not even long. It's just it's you know I'm in new territory here, right? These are new thoughts for me for the first. I'm hearing them in real time, just letting them soak in and be like, yeah. I mean, that's again really helpful. I think I think for a lot of us listening, it's like, huh? Never thought about that. Never had the framework to consider that. Never understood the hyperlinking happening right between Genesis and what's happening in Matthew and and how yes it, it would make sense that these gospel authors have you know their Jewish scriptures in mind because that's probably what they were soaked in mm-hmm. when they're when they're writing yes. these accounts right. Um, so that yes, that exactly. is helpful. Um, and yeah, I ahead. think from a womanist point of view, no, oh, please go ahead. Let me just add this one final yeah. thought. From a womanist point of view, reading the genealogy of Jesus lets you see that it's not the 
the standard matriarchs that are highlighted in Jesus's genealogy. It's not Sarah, it's not Leah, it's not Rachel. It's not the ones that we think about as the matriarchs. It's the ones that we tend to not think about as proper matriarchs. And so for womanism, when we see that, we're like, oh, so even if I'm not the top feminist in the world, there's still room for my my identity as womanist and what that means in the the story of Jesus in the world. And so I think it's it's a it's a, a point of view and a perspective that says, huh, even the gospel writers are not necessarily thinking about the matriarchs that we usually uphold, but weaving in the the women from the underside of society. And that's what womanism is essentially trying to lift up the women from the underside of society that most people tend to overlook. Yeah, that's that's really good. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap and the sound of me not doing dishes and the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. If someone you love is struggling with their mental health, you don't have to struggle alone. Call or text 988 to get resources and support from trained crisis counselors who can help you help them. 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Hope has a new number. I am kind of curious. I I know we laughed a little bit about the flying drummers, but there is something about that that spectacle. You know, I did a video on it recently and I I said it, it looks more like a celebration of the empire than a celebration of the Jesus that teaches us to subvert the empire. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. does womanist theology have anything to say about these massive spectacles that many of us who were either a part of or helped build look at now and we go, oh, like it just misses the whole point, I think, of like the spirit yeah. of, of, of this Christmas story that we're trying to celebrate. Is, does womanist theology have anything to say about this? I definitely, definitely. I'm thinking about Luke chapter two, and I love Luke's gospel because Luke does a really good job of contextualizing Jesus in history. And so Luke talks about in the time or in the reign of Caesar Augustus, you know, these things are happening. There was um, a, a taxing or a census taken. And you know, it's funny, people think Luke made up the census, but that I digress. <laughs> so what it's complicated. <laughs> what, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> but essentially, Luke in his writing, you see that Jesus is kind of almost pitted against empire. And so you see Jesus being on the scene and you see Caesar Augustus or Luke naming Caesar Augustus as emperor, but also Herod being in the mix and saying, you know, he wants to go worship Jesus as well. But the, the wise men or the Magi never return to Herod because they've heard in a dream that Herod is you know, not right. So I think womanism reads that text as a womanist biblical scholar. I read that text and I say, all right, Jesus is coming 
and is flipping the notion of empire on its head because you have the emperor in the story, you have a king in the story. And if a, a baby is going to be born, who's going to be king of the world and savior of the world, surely he would have been born in the castle or in the, you know, in Jerusalem where Herod is living, whatever. But Jesus is from the underside again. And I think womanist interpretations will highlight Jesus from the underside and actually argue that when we talk about Jesus as exalted Christ only, we miss the importance of Jesus from the underside. So there's a womanist theologian by the name of Jacqueline Goldsby Grant, and she actually has written a really good book entitled White Women's Christ, Black Women's Jesus. Mm -hmm. And she talks about how when feminist theologians are thinking about the Christology, thinking about Christology and, and Jesus, they highlight the lordship of Jesus. When black women think about Jesus, they highlight the, the embodied Jesus that walks with us through struggle and looks at that Luke text and sees that Jesus is born right in the midst of struggle. Huh. So instead of always thinking about an exalted Christ, Womanist New Testament scholars, womanist theologians are reading the text and saying, here's the embodied Jesus that walks with us as we're trying to get to Canada and out of its, out of slavery. Mm. The Jesus who walks with me. And if I were a singer, I'd say something like, I want Jesus to walk with me. But I'm not a singer, so I'm not going to do that. But I just it's pretty good. <laughs> right. It's better than me, my and friend. Way better. <laughs> <laughs> But I think that's the difference, that it's it's Jesus versus high exalted Christ. And that's how you flip empire. Yeah. I, I Correct me if I'm wrong on this. I'm just going to give you a, a, a thought as you were talking. It seems like my tradition um, really focused on this, like you said, lordship and almost like supernatural side of, of Christ being God mm -hmm. and you know being more God than human. But what you're describing is... Yes. Uh, maybe a, a focus on his humanity and the fact that he really walked among us and was born into struggle. I mean, we, you know, he was born under the occupation of the empire, right? I mean, he was not born, exactly. uh, you know, uh, as someone with, with, with the silver spoon in his mouth, we might say in our cultural context, right? And so right. is that kind of maybe one of the biggest, is that maybe the, a, a difference here, you know, is between how, how my tradition taught me how to view a, a hyper emphasis on just the lordship on Christ as ruler, Christ as king. Maybe not bad things or not, you know, things that we can see in the Bible, but also there's a big theme that we're missing of his humanness that Jesus pooped. You know, he yes. was a human. He he, yes. he walked among us. <laughs> he was human. Is that kind of is that mm -hmm. fair to say? Yes, that's very fair to say, which is why I, you know, shouted at my pastor who talks about with us in the mess, talking about Jesus being with us in the messiness of humanity. And how can Jesus, how can Jesus take on the, the, the sins of the world or the sins of humanity without knowing what walking in humanity actually looks and feels like? Mm. And I think Jesus had to experience all those things. He had to walk and be with people in such a way that his humanity is also tied to other people's humanity. 
And I would argue that that's the example that Jesus leaves for us because I think churches get so caught up in the creedal language of, I believe, you know, Jesus hung, bled and died and suffered under Pontius Pilate. I believe that he rose again on the third day. I believe that he now sits on the right hand of God. And I'm not saying that the creedal language is bad, but I'm just saying that when you look at both the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, or perhaps even some creeds in churches, they often skip over the life and ministry of Jesus in this creedal language. And I would argue that womanism actually wants to look at Jesus and the life of Jesus and the example that he he leaves us in addition to thinking about the people who were around Jesus, not just the 12 apostles, but all the other disciples and the crowds who were also walking with Jesus. Because when you read the gospel of Luke, by the time you get to Luke eight, you get this, um, you get the language of women who are also walking with Jesus and ministering to him out of their tahu parkanta. Tahu parkanta is essentially this idea of everything that you have. And I just love how Luke talks about these women who are are walking with Jesus and hearing his teachings and being there and ministering with what they have. And oftentimes when we read our Bibles and even when we reimagine and think about texts in church, we only we only imagine the the 12 apostles around Jesus and thinking about I think John MacArthur wrote a book 12 great men or 12 you know men something Sounds I remember reading right. that when I was in ministry <laughs> yeah and I was just like 12 great white American again? men who believe their nation was a Christian <laughs> nation and were also Jesus's first disciples by John MacArthur <laughs> yes and it, and it completely ignores that there are women around mm. And so that's that's what womanism tries to do, to put back in place what's already there in the text. Right, right. Yeah. Do you, okay, one more th- question about this, because you, you got my mind kind of working. And again, if, I, if I'm off here, just correct me. Um, do you mm-hmm. think that – what I'm wondering as you're saying this is I'm thinking about about the, the, the different experiences in America – for the black community, specifically black women, and for and for white men, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering how that experience affects how we read about Jesus, right? Because on one hand, right. you're telling me that you know a, a womanist lens would, would would see more of that humanity born in the struggle, right? I'm thinking, okay, that maps on, I think, to more of that experience being a black woman in America compared to being a white man who, right. oh, we're already in charge, you know, kingship, lordship, everything's great, no problems here, kind of yes. thing. Is there a connection there, mm-hmm. or am I am I am I making things up? Like, what are your thoughts on that? No, it's a it's a it's a connection. So because I teach and I teach a variety of students, I will have in the classroom conservative white men. And I'm usually grateful that they're there in the room because then the women who are in my classes get to have real life conversations about what it means to be women in ministry and just just you know have these like really thorny knotty tension filled conversations and i remember one class and this is in my go- my gospel of luke class one class uh, a woman said you know i'm realizing that this theology that i grew up in is very toxic 
And one of the conservative conservative gentlemen in the room said, well, I grew up in that same atmosphere, but I don't think of it as toxic. And I said, well, it's interesting how the person who's on top in the theology, in the, in the system, in the patriarchal theological worldview is okay because they come out on top. But you tell the woman who says she's grown up in the same system and it was toxic for her, you kind of disavow that it was toxic for her because you can only see it from the top and not from her positionality. And so I kind of had to just push back on the conversation a little bit to say, where you are positioned makes a difference on how you experience the theologies that are placed upon you. If you are already at the top, then the theology doesn't seem toxic. But if you're a woman who God has gifted with ministry and ability to preach and to teach, not just to the children, but to everyone in a congregation, then growing up in a patriarchal theological worldview seems toxic. And so how do we actually have these conversations where we, we can see the humanity of other people and what our, our theologies do to other people. It's still, it's a hard conversation to have. And I, I see, I see <laughs> the lovely white men in my classrooms struggling with it. I don't know if it makes a difference when they leave but I have to hope and pray that somewhere down the line, Holy Spirit continues to prick, prick hearts and change minds. Well, listen, I'm not, I'm not every white man that ever existed, but as someone who <laughs> grew up in those spaces, you know, um, very John MacArthur type spaces, very fundamentalist, really inhaled the theology, really was devoted to understanding it, you know, wrestled. I would have friends over in my basement trying to think about what's the true gospel. You know, I mean, we, I lived this stuff and it, it was, it took time, but it was seeds that were planted that I, that my, my theology or my experience couldn't really answer for. And, you know, I, I right. think that, that, that the work you do in the classroom, you're right. You don't always see the full fruit it bears, but if, if they are, if those men are really trying to be honest and trying to really pursue what they would call truth, I think it's only a matter of time before they realize that the world's bigger than their very narrow theology and that that theology mm. that they grew up in does not give everyone the same experience that they've experienced. So I, I, I right. listen, I'm not a fortune teller here, but I think there's a good chance <laughs> that when they're alone and they're really thinking about it, they have questions that maybe you posed where they say, yeah, I don't know what to do with this one yet. And I don't have an answer for it, you know, and hopefully that will lead them to finding better ways forward. I mean, I grew, I was not affirming until like four years ago, three years ago. You know, I mean, my theology is so mm. shifted um, because I took my pastor seriously and it let me out of, of their tradition, you know, ultimately. So I hope that's helpful for you. But I, I think you're doing great work in those spaces um, for what it's worth. Um, one mm. thing I, I, I appreciate. Yeah, that. for sure. If you. Um, 
I know that you wrote a book, an amazing book. If God uh, still breathes, why can't I? I? I have it on audiobook. Uh, really powerful reading. And, and some of this is kind of your own story in the book. You mentioned how you were, you know, mm-hmm. the only black woman in your class, and how you know uh, men told you, like, well, you really essentially shouldn't be here, right? Like, you're just not qualified. Right. And here you are now, kicking ass. Mm-hmm. You're in. You know, you're in movies. Um, you're 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 just a you're uh, my, my goodness. I mean, you know your shit, and you, you teach it so well. And so, I think even that is is another example, right, of how these spaces that people like myself just take for granted are not welcoming to people who don't look or act or have the same genitalia that they have. Frankly, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, very true. Mm. Well. A couple more questions while we're here. You know, I, this this is yes. very thought provoking stuff. I'm thinking about people who are listening, who maybe um, this could be a lonely time for people with with, with estranged families. Maybe mm. they maybe they, they've lost loved ones, and Christmas is just not it's not it's not a pleasant time, right? Unlike the commercials yeah, yeah. where people are buying each other BMWs, which by the way, who has the money to buy each other BMWs? You ever think about that? I saw that yesterday. Like, I was so confused. Car commercials, but I'm like, like, who has? I mean, everyone gets a car. Who has ninety grand just lying around for a Lexus? I don't know. But you know, unlike that, for many people, this is a, a time of lament, right? It's a time of sorrow. Um, what? How does womanist theology handle times like this that maybe are designed for celebration, but for many bring a lot of trauma mm. and pain? Maybe they maybe they've been kicked out of their churches as their first year without without a church home. You know right, how how does womanist right. theology, um, in that perspective, answer some of these deep hurts? Oh, that's a great question. Oh, and you know I'm not sure if I know the answer to that because. One thing that actually helps me in my own womanist identity is I'm still here and I'm still in the struggle. And so I would say that because womanist thought also upholds this idea of sometimes I have to tap out in order to take care of myself before I can tap back in, I would argue that womanist theology would give people the ability to say, I can't do everything that, you know, my family expects of me at Christmas and I will be okay with that, even if they are not okay with that. I think that we put so many expectations on people and, and on what we're supposed to feel this holiday season and, you know, all the, the fun we're supposed to have. And for some people, this is a first Christmas without a mother or a father or a spouse. And so I would argue that just recognizing that humanity, even within this season, is what womanism hopes to do. And so again, it goes back to the humanity piece of who we are and to recognize that you just can't flip a switch and get all the holiday spirit. No, it just doesn't work like that. So I think womanism, just highlighting the humanity of Jesus and of us, our humanity as well. I think that's the important issue. And that's the help that we can at least begin to offer a little bit. Sometimes you do just have to sit with other people in their mess. Yeah. And, and be a compassionate and an empathetic presence. Mm-hmm. 
Um, part of the Christmas story for me is hope. You know, the idea that okay, like God mm-hmm. with us, God among us. Um, I yeah. I hold to um, a belief that one day I don't know when or how or or if it's even objectively scientifically true, but I hope one day that all things are reconciled and all things are made new and all things are made right. You know, the the the, the crookedness right. of the world is made straight again, something like that. Um. How how do you think about hope during Christmas and, and this idea that you know um, this tension of like was it like yes but not yet something like that where it's 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 we hope mm-hmm. for for that that wholeness or whatever you want to call it now but we know it's it's not just yet so we we keep in that struggle what are how, how do you view that you know for you and, and and through that lens during Christmas? Well, it's interesting. I actually go to Paul, and I think you you touched on. Paul's already, but not yet, that Jesus came into the world and we're remembering Jesus is coming at this time because it is the Advent season, the advent of Jesus is coming. It's the arrival. And when Paul writes around Romans 8, so Romans 8, somewhere between 17 and 24, he talks about not just us hoping, but he also talks about creation hoping as well. And so when I think about humanity hoping for something to change and also creation hoping for something to change and creation just kind of being in anticipation of what is going to happen when Jesus just like puts everything right, I actually get hope. I get more hope because I don't feel like I'm the only one hoping by myself. And to think about even the the trees and the grass and the the sky and the clouds, to think about bushes and plants and animals, the deer that we see on Santa's, you know, <laughs> reindeer sleigh. Yeah. I mean, everything when I think about all of creation hoping for something, I think that's part of you know, the food that Jesus is for us. And when I talk about the food that Jesus is for us, I'm thinking back to a presentation that a student did in one of my classes where she talks about the manger that Jesus is laying in and that a manger is actually a a place where the animals eat from. So you can imagine, like we, we have this nativity scene in our head of, the all these animals around Jesus as well. And it makes sense. She said, it makes sense that the animals are around Jesus because he's laying in their food bin. (laughs) It's like, get the baby out of our food bin. But then when we think about, you know, the Lord's supper or the Eucharist and Jesus being in a manger and just like almost continues to be food Mm. for us. I, I kind of almost see it as, as Jesus is food for us, we're supposed to be food for other people as well, just in the things that we do and in our service. And when I think about all creation hoping, it's almost like a full life cycle of humanity and animals just hoping for the, the food that Jesus will constantly be for us in order to make things right. And so I don't normally think about 
you know, Jesus in the manger and go to Revelation 21, 22. But in Revelation 21, 22, you get this, this tree of life that's set in the midst of the new Jerusalem. And the tree of life has its leaves that go forth and, and they heal the nations and it has this fruit on it. So I'm also seeing, you know, Jesus in a manger, Advent season, Paul talking about hope, but also creation waiting for hope. And then by the time you get to Revelation, this idea of a tree that's reminiscent of the Genesis tree of knowledge of good and evil, but this tree is for the healing of all nations. I think that's the hope that I'm gearing up for. That hope that, you know, John the Revelator in Revelation says that he sees in Revelation 7 a whole group of all nations, all ethnicities, all languages, all tongues. That's the hope that I'm trying to get to and to keep having in my in my body as I think about what hope means during this Advent season. So I just took you from Genesis, Matthew, Luke, Paul, Revelation. <laughs> That's because you're a teacher. It's what you do. <laughs> and I love it. I love it. It's like the the New Testament in 60 seconds. <laughs> I think that's a really beautiful note to end on. Um, I, I hear from from folks in my community often. We just did this, uh, like a story series on, on Christmas. I was asking for feedback. And the stories range from I can't wait to this is my first, you know, Christmas without my my dad or my mm-hmm. spouse. And it's like, wow, yeah. you're just you're holding space for so many people in different spaces in that journey of life. Um, where some are mm-hmm. super expectant for Christmas and can't wait, and they're feeling that holiday cheer, and others who are just like, get me the hell out of here. The pain is too great. And I think looking at the person of Jesus, the humanity, and this idea uh, of hope, like we already, but, but not yet, right? Like, like we, we, we want to see yes. these moments, these little miracles in our midst today, but also we realize that we're kind of, I mean, creation is groaning, right? I think Paul makes it seem like almost like birth yes. pains, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, we, we have yes. that, mm-hmm. that, 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 that feeling of tenseness, like we, we, we haven't released yet and we're just hoping for that time to come. So I, I think it's a great note to end on, to think about that for all of our community, as we think about, you know, uh, participating in the Christmas tradition of celebration of Jesus coming to, you know, among us uh, for 2022. So that's wonderful. Yes. Ma'am, um, Dr. Parker, um, where can folks find you? Mm-hmm. I mean, do, I know you have, you have books out. Are you on Twitter? Where can people follow more of your work? Yes. I am on Twitter at AMP22F as in Frank, A as in Apple, B as in boy. So AMP22Fab on Twitter and on Instagram and still working on my website. I've got to get a website out, but I don't have it up yet. <laughs> I'll let you know when it I gets I feel like up. you told me that last time I interviewed you. <laughs> I think I did <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Parker, I hope you have a Oh, oh wait, I, I am trying out um TikTok oh. and and TikTok I'm on Boozy Bible Scholar ah. because I love my wine. <laughs> And it just felt perfect I love for that. me. I love that. Well, we'll make sure to put some links in the show notes for you. Dr. Parker, as always, truly an honor and privilege to have you on. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank and have a so great much. Christmas. You do the same. Thank you, Tim. Okay. 
Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another hundred meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com.